Early in our years in Chicago, I was taking my sister Tiffany back to Midway Airport after one of her visits. We had lots of time, plenty of time. That is, <laughs> until I took a wrong turn that led me to take another wrong turn and yet another. And in the end, I barely got my sister to the airport in time for her flight. A few days later, a small package arrived in the mail from my sister, and I opened it, and it was a brand new GPS. You know, <laughs> it was just one of Tiffany's perfect gifts, a sign of her usual wonderful generosity and also a friendly poke in the ribs for almost making her miss her flight. Later, to our delight, my family soon discovered that this GPS could be turned to an Australian voice, whom we soon named Gertrude. And Gertrude soon became my trusted guide as I drove far and wide across Chicagoland on my pastoral visits. Along the way, I soon started noticing the way that Gertrude responded to all my wrong turns and my missed exits. Recalculating, she would say. Recalculating, recalculating. Now, it's very important to know that missing an exit, missing an exit actually had real consequences, sometimes causing me in Chicago a whole extra half hour of driving. But Gertrude always worked with me to guide me to where I needed to go. Now, being a pastor, and you know where I'm going with this, folks, don't you? Being a pastor, <laughs> this invariably led me to think about God. How in our lives as well, God keeps recalculating, recalculating, and working with our mistakes in surprising ways for our good and the good of others. To paraphrase St. John of the Cross, God knows how to draw good out of evil so wisely and so beautifully. In our reading today from Genesis 15, our wonderful reading, we join Joseph and his 11 brothers in the final chapter of their incredibly tumultuous saga and story. Back in the first chapter of their story, you'll remember, when Joseph is just 17 years old, he is his father's favorite son, his father's pet, and he's given a special coat with many colors to prove it. And his brothers hate and despise him for that coat. To make matters worse, Joseph 
not only has a dream one night where his brothers all bow down before him, but he has the chutzpah, the chutzpah, to tell them all about it the next morning at breakfast. Long story short, they all conspire to throw him in a pit, sell him to slave traders headed for Egypt, and then tell their devastated father, Jacob, that he's been devoured by a wild beast. But then in Egypt, the gifted Joseph soon rises up from lowly slave to become the Pharaoh's trusted second-in-command with oversight over all the empire's food reserves, a modern-day department of agriculture. And then, when a famine falls upon the region, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt begging and in desperate search for food. Not recognizing their brother, they bow down to him, just as Joseph had once dreamed. And then Joseph eventually reveals his identity, and after much sobbing and many tears, they are all reconciled. And their father Jacob then joins them all in Egypt for the final 17 years of his life. But in our story today, all is not well. Because we find Joseph's 11 brothers feeling anxious and terrified. Without the stabilizing and benevolent presence of their father, will Joseph now seek to avenge their terrible misdeed to him from the past? Is Joseph going to start flashing back to how they had once taunted and spit upon him down in that pit? And so today they come to Joseph begging for his mercy and forgiveness and showing that we are in the hands of a great storyteller here, we see them bowing down before Joseph one last time, just as he had dreamed long ago as a 17-year-old. And it is now that Joseph stuns them with his grace. Do not be afraid, he tells them. No need to bow down before me as if I were God. Even though you intended long ago to harm me, recalculating, recalculating, God intended it for good in order to preserve not just my own life, but the lives of of our whole family and community. Friends, notice that Joseph's words are not the kind of sentimental, Pollyannish, oh, everything's going to turn out right in the end 
kind of denial of reality that we sometimes hear. No, no. Joseph forcefully confronts the incredibly painful reality that his brothers back then didn't just take a mistaken wrong turn. They meant to hurt him, and they did, and Joseph says so. But even as Joseph squarely faces reality, he is also deeply grounded in the even deeper and all the more encompassing reality of God. Recalculating, recalculating. God's intention prevails over, works through, and ultimately circumvents the evil intention of Joseph's brothers. What they had intended for evil, God uses for good. God is able to draw good out of evil so wisely, so beautifully. God wastes nothing and even uses our own worst mistakes in our favor. Friends, these days, we are a congregation struggling to face a very hard and painful reality. You see, a virus has spread around our whole planet, and nations organized around the common good, the good of all, have battled this virus and eventually recovered. But not our nation, not us. And so these days we are grappling with the very painful reality that this virus has been able to expose and exploit and widen all the inequity and injustice and racist rot festering in our nation's structures and in our own souls. We are grappling with the reality that this virus has ruthlessly attacked those among us who are the least valued and the most vulnerable in our society, those who are poor and black and brown. I said least valued, but they are infinitely valued by God, eternally precious. And friends, because we belong to this same God, our congregation these days has been trying to respond by working and giving generously and praying for and even getting ready to vote now for the well-being of our most vulnerable neighbors. 
But I don't know about you, what I often lack most of all these days is hope. And in fact, quite a few of you have been sharing with me as well that that's what you lack as well, hope. And our story today comes to our rescue, reminding us that in all of this chaos swirling around us every day, God is still secretly and hiddenly at work. Somehow, some way, working to draw good from all of this evil so wisely and so beautifully. Indeed, we see this pattern most clearly in the central primal story, the primal narrative of our Christian faith, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. On the cross, the powers of evil enmeshed in the human structures and systems of Jesus' day, the religious leaders and the Roman imperial rulers, all of them conspire not just to throw Jesus in a pit, but to kill him. And that's what they do. Recalculating. Recalculating. And then on the third day, God, God stuns our whole human family with grace, amazing grace, using the worst thing that's ever happened in history for our healing and salvation and reconciliation. It's been said that the brothers of Joseph were surprised by the same God who surprised us on Easter morning. Isn't that wonderful? What was meant for evil, God uses for good. God takes all of our worst human mistakes as a human family and uses them in our favor. As C.S. Lewis writes so beautifully, God is able to write straight with our crooked lines. So friends, let me close. We find this same fierce hope in Julian of Norwich, the 14th century Christian contemplative and mystic. And what you have to know about her is that she lived in England during a time when her land was being ravaged by one terrifying pandemic after another. And yet, in that very context, she is able to write her astonishing words of hope. All shall be well. All shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Because, you see, she knows deep in her soul the deeper reality. The deeper reality that God is ever at work 
drawing good from evil so wisely and so beautifully. And may it be so, dear friends, in our time as well. Amen.